One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Matthew Salises, author of the novel The Sense of Wonder. It was this moment for many Asian Americans in which things that seemed off limits to us were suddenly allowed and even celebrated. We'll be back with Matthew Salises after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. 
Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create a first draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Matthew Salises, author of four books, including the national bestseller Craft in the Real World and the 2021 finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, Disappear Doppelganger Disappear. Salises was adopted from Korea and has written about adoption, race, and Asian American masculinity in various publications. He has taught fiction in Asian American literature and studies at the University of Houston, Coe College, Oklahoma State University, and other community writing centers. BuzzFeed has named him one of 32 essential Asian American writers. His new novel is called The Sense of Wonder and tells the story of Asian American NBA star Won Lee, who stuns the world with an off-the-bench seven-game winning streak. The media dubs him The Wonder, but once his streak ends, he struggles to get attention from his coach, fans, and his hero and teammate, Powerball. Covering one's rise and fall is Robert Sung, also an Asian-American basketball player turned journalist who is obsessed with Powerball and uses one to get access to the player he truly covets. Meanwhile, one and his girlfriend Carrie are navigating a new relationship while Carrie's sister is dying of cancer. Carrie has her own journey to contend with as she is a big studio producer of K-dramas in Korea and struggles to bring the concept to American viewers. We began the discussion with Matthew Salises talking about prompts that he was given in graduate school by the writer Robert Boswell and how they helped him write The Sense of Wonder. I think whether I'm using somebody else's prompts or just uh, coming up with restrictions or things I want to do on my own, challenges maybe, I'm always kind of using prompts. I mean, what's an idea other than a prompt, right? So in that way, I think they're all, you know, all the things we do as writers, kind of jumping off from something some kind of challenge we've set for ourselves or some kind of goal we have in mind. Um, 
these prompts happen to be challenges that Boz had set for me and for our class. And uh, we would have these like 15 page prompts, 20 page prompts, and we would have to write five pages, right? So he had written these amazingly long and, and detailed prompts. And the thing I like about that is uh, there's so many different ways you could go with it, right? Sometimes it feels like I always kind of shied away from prompts earlier in my career because sometimes they felt too directive. But Boz's prompts were less prompts and more like craft lectures or something, right? And so you had many different directions to go. And and I was taking this class with him where we were writing uh, the beginning, middle, and end of a novel. And uh, we were reading four different books, four different novels, and we were reading all the beginnings together, all the middles together, and all the endings together. And then he would have us write the same novel in these four different forms. And one was like a novel on stories. Uh, one was what he called a modular novel. One was a more kind of traditional, it was like Age of Innocence. And, um, and then the last one... Oh, it was like uh, time compressed. It was all like, it was uh, Billy Lincoln's long halftime walk. So it was all like in the halftime. Um, and so we would have to kind of reimagine the novel each time to fit into this whole form. And the thing right about any story is you kind of have to like, you have to have some kind of feeling of the entirety, even when you don't know what that entirety is. Or like the possibility for what that entirety might become in order to figure out how to write the a beginning for sure, right? Beginnings are so hard. Um, and so, you know, by the end of it, I had done a lot of thinking about different ways the novel could be. And um, actually just, I was reading with you and Lee the other day and uh, she was saying that she had asked Marilyn Robinson how to write a novel and, and um, or how to plot a novel. And and Marilyn Robinson had told her, I, I can't, I don't know how to plot a novel, but I can tell you how to write a plotless novel. And to do it, you need to have three reasons for every single thing that you do, or maybe five reasons, or, or why don't you try for seven reasons? And Ian Lee said she thought this was overwhelming and impossible. Um, but over time, she had come to the place where she thought, Maybe for every story, you need to have three stories or five stories, or maybe try for seven stories. Um, and I really love that. And I think the class allowed us to kind of have four stories for the story that we were writing. And so the prompts were really useful in that way. And I ended up writing the beginning, middle, and end um, of one story, uh, who's the one of the two narrators. And um, then... I put it aside. Um, I, I remember asking Boz what I should do. And he was like, oh, you just write the stuff in between, obviously. And I was thinking, that sounds not, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so um, I just put it aside for a couple of years. And then my wife was diagnosed with cancer and I was spending a lot of time with her kind of going up and down from Busan to Seoul in Korea and um, sitting by her hospital bed for, you know, three, four day stretches with a lot of a lot of the time she was sleeping and uh, I went back to this novel and I thought, okay, I'll fill in the blanks now, I guess. Um, but I still didn't want to do that. And so I emailed Boz 
And I asked him for all those old prompts, you know, I kept maybe one or two, but um, not all of them. And he was really nice about sending all of them to me. Uh, and so I wrote another beginning, middle and end for the novel from Carrie's perspective, who's the other narrator here. And um, then I just had to figure out how to put them together. Wow. <laughs> yeah. There's so many rich questions in there that I want to follow up with. But I guess one of the things you said, and I won't get your words exactly right, was something about having to see the whole novel. And I think some people write as they go because they don't they haven't figured it out. And it sounds like you didn't totally figure it out because you came back to it years later. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think, you know, the, people often say like the beginning is the last thing that you write for a novel or the last thing that you get right for a novel. And I found that often to be the case. And so I don't think it's about understanding really what the novel is going to be, but more about imagining where it might go. Um, when you're writing that beginning, you know, I'm always trying to pack in a lot of possibility, right? And a lot of rules for what it looks like to read the book and a lot of voice and a lot of, you know, characterization and a lot of um, expectations for what could go on, you know, stakes, all of these things have to go into be the beginning of a novel, right? And so... <sighs> You know, there's a sense in which you're kind of like narrowing the infinite possibilities of what a blank page can be into um, certain do doors you might go through in a novel. And so each time I had to do this, you know, I had to think if I fit this all, the whole novel into, you know, an hour or a day or something then it's going to look different, right? Um, even if some similar things happen or if the same themes are going over, um, I'm going to need to figure out how to set up those rules and how to even conceive of the novel in that time space. And if I'm going to write everything in these like one or two page chapters, then I'm going to have to think of it in a different way than if I'm writing something more like Age of Innocence, you know, like these, so each of these kind of restrictions then, um, again, like kind of limit the infinite possibilities and, but in a different direction, right? So each time I had to think, if I want to write a story about this NBA, this Asian American NBA basketball player, how do I f conceive of a beginning that can tell this story in the way in, in like the novel form that we're looking at. Um, and so it, it wasn't that I could kind of think of the entirety of the novel in specifics, but sort of in a, a sense of like, what could it be? And, you know, in the end, of course, I had to go back and, and rethink that, you know, again, many times before I could have a, a, a draft that I, you know, would show someone. And you said that you were by your wife's side a lot, which I'm so sorry to hear of her passing. And the part that you wrote, Carrie, when you were with your wife, she her sister is dying of cancer. So can you talk a little bit about how 
like truth enters books. I mean, it's also in the other part too, with the basketball part. We're not talking about veracity. We're talking about truth of being human. It's a good question. I, I wanted to write a book about wonder. I mean, the title, right? And I was writing the basketball side of it about a time when I felt the most wonder in my life, which was insanity. And um, when I was writing Carrie's part, I was surrounded by by people who really needed us this sense of wonder and who really kind of were relying on it since there's very little anyone could do actively. There's very little agency we had over life and death, but but kind of life and death was all around and, and really present. And so that also seemed like a thing, right, that was a part of this novel. And so if I'm writing on the one hand about feeling so much wonder, and then on the other hand about needing so much wonder, these things kind of go together. Like, I'm not sure that I would have just kind of included so much of what was going on for me in any book, but this book already seemed to be in the same landscape. And, and if I'm kind of writing about the the mountaintop on one side, and of course, there's also the bottom of the valley on the other side. You said that you were at a time when you were feeling some of the most wonder. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so Linsanity, so I don't know if people remember this, but in 2012, Jeremy Lin became the first Asian American basketball star. And for six games in a row, he led the Knicks, who were really terrible at that time, and still kind of, you know, are often terrible, but <laughs> to, to six wins in his first six starts. And he had come off the end of the bench because nobody had given him any playing time. And so it seemed like he had come out of nowhere, gone from someone nobody had heard of or very few people had heard of, maybe only Asian Americans had heard of, uh, to, you know, winning best player of the month in the NBA. And it was this moment for many Asian Americans in which things that seemed off limits to us were suddenly allowed and even celebrated. Uh, and so it was this time, I mean, I, you know, of possibility that there, there were new possibilities in the world um, or in this country at least. So let's talk a little bit about just like your book. So um, The Sense of Wonder is about one. And just to be clear, it's W-O-N is his name. And he is he is also playing for the Knicks. He got his chance. He played in in uh, in college and is on the team. And he had a similar experience to Jeremy Lin, where he was kind of on the bench the whole time, and then he had this winning streak. Also on the team is this guy named Powerball, who is African-American, and he is the star. All eyes are always on him. And then there's this third character named Robert Sung, who's a journalist. And he did play basketball in high school with Powerball and got injured and now is a journalist. And he kind of has this obsession slash love affair with Powerball and uses one to kind of get to him. Whereas one thinks they're going to bond because of it. It's a means to an end for Robert. 
And then you mentioned the other narrative is with Carrie, which is one's girlfriend, and she is a producer of film, and she goes to Korea, and she gets into K-drama, which we can also talk about. And it's kind of going back and forth between her effort to make these K-dramas and her relationship with one. So part of, I think, what you were interrogating with this, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is, you know, racism. Some of your characters um, from Korea are adopted as you are. So adoption fitting into into the white world and also sort of drama, the type of dramas that K-drama show to the world that we don't necessarily have in this country. Can you talk more about your obsessions? I'm not sure if I got them all. <laughs> yeah, it's about, well, it's about wonder, I guess. It's about like possibilities within the limitations that are put up on us, right? One is is kind of put in this sort of box or like the absence of a box um, and is is limited by people not having any model for his success. So the epigraph of the book is, is this quote from the times about, uh, about Jeremy Lin. And it was, you know, when he, when he had that kind of rise, people were like, why haven't we heard about, of him? And so they asked scouts and coaches, um, why, why he hadn't kind of been playing already. Uh, and they said, Oh, we didn't have, there was no frame of reference for him. Right. So just like books, right. Where we have this kind of like, we have to say what our comps are um, and you have to have successful comps because right. Unsuccessful comps probably don't do you any good. The um, Lynn didn't really, there was nobody for whom there was a model of success for him um, since there were no Asian American basketball stars before him. Um, and, you know, to be kind of stuck in this is just the kind of, it's, it's the default state for him. It's, it's, he's not going to be able to kind of like destroy all the boundaries. So within these stories that are told about him, he's going to have to kind of make a story within there. Um, and that's kind of what I felt like with Linsanity, this, this like moment in which, you know, Asians are not good at sports becomes, well, but what if, what if they are, right? Um, what if our stories aren't uh, capacious enough, right? Um, am I just making that word up? <laughs> um, to, to encapsulate what the human experience is like. And um, the same kind of things I think are true of racism in general and of like life, you know, what we think of as um, possible in our lives even. In this country, we kind of think you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you make a life full of decisions and actions. Um, and other people, I think, in this country are living a life where they don't have the ability to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and really the the shaping forces of their lives um, 
are limitations placed upon them systemically or sometimes even personally, right? Or by trauma or et cetera. And K-drama offers um, a different kind of possibility within that uh, limitation, right? K-dramas are often about fate and coincidence and things happening because they're supposed to happen or maybe, you know, they just have to happen um, or they just happen to us because we're born rich or poor or we're born, you know, one race or another, we're born in one country or another to one set of parents or another and um, one time or another. And within that, we still have to make a life, right? And we still have to have more possibility than those things uh, might dictate. And the possibility can't always come from agency. Sometimes it has to just be a story we can tell um, about what we can, what might we might be able to do uh, or what we might be able to make out of what we were given. So I want to interrogate this idea of frame of reference a little more because it makes sense when you talk about it in terms of like your book. But I also have this this sort of anger inside for when they talked about Jeremy in general, because I don't think you could make any kind of breakthrough if you were only limited by frame of reference. I mean, that's where infinity lies is not having a frame of reference. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough even with books, right? Like I'm always asked about the comps and I always struggle really hard to come up with comps and then I end up just, you know, that's always native speaker, (laughs) you know, which is like the first Korean American novel on a big press. And even though I don't think, you know, it's a really very good comp. And I think the same thing happens, you know, with people trying to get jobs, for example, right. And they have no prior work experience. And so they're not, you know, they're not allowed to work there. Or when I was teaching in, in Houston, and Houston's the the most diverse big city in the country, or probably the world, I would guess. Um, and I had these students who were who were able to grow up in these large communities. Uh, and then they would come into class and we would talk about these kind of limitations and possibilities. And sometimes they would say, it's not like me and it's not the system, it's my, it's my parents and my community who are saying you have to be a lawyer or you have to be an engineer, right? Because these are the, but I would say, you know, like, but actually maybe they're not saying this because, right, they, they don't want you to be anything else. It's because if you look around and you're a parent and you, you don't see anybody succeeding as an actor or something, right? how many Asian American actors can we name? Not that many. Then, you know, you want your kid to succeed. And the models you have for that all look like your friends, kids and your friends who are engineers or something. So that then becomes the way you think your child will be able to have a a good life. And so these things are not kind of like parental it's because these are the stories that already kind of exist within the limitations that are placed upon them and they're just trying to like give their kids the best life possible and they just don't see these other things as possibilities because they haven't been possibilities you know 
I, I think this kind of happens all the time and it's hard to blame anyone trying to live within those things or like trying to survive, right? The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Yeah, and I think one was strapped with that himself, that his own thinking was limited for what was possible for him. I mean, he had this streak and he knew he wanted to go back and find it again. But at the same time, he felt like that the community wouldn't let him have that. He also felt, I think, with... Powerball, and rightfully so, there was definitely like Powerball didn't want to be threatened by someone else on the team, maybe outshining him and being better than him. So he, there were challenges there. But I think there was also more to their relationship that one couldn't see. Yeah, yeah. And at a certain point, he has to decide, right? Like, do I stay in the NBA and stay within, you know, within these limitations? and make the most of it? Or do I try to find another place where there is a frame of reference for me? And you know, I think it's a difficult choice that we have to make often in life. And I think I wrote this down. Um, I can check the page, but it said being Korean grounded me. And I think that was one saying that. Yeah, yeah. So he com- he's comparing himself to Robert Song and who's adopted and, and, and one... I don't, I don't think that he is maybe the best judge of, of Robert. Uh, and, and at some point, Carrie, I think, calls him out for this. But he has a certain view of Robert as an adoptee, as someone who grew up in white culture, um, as not being a kind of insider. And yet one at the same time is is suffering from the way that people see him as an outsider in the NBA. Uh, and so those stories, right, they're just so powerful on all these levels. And it's hard to get away from telling ourselves, like, this is the kind of person we can be, or this is the kind of person other people can be because of X, Y, Z. And um, I don't think Robert exactly is the way that one sees him. But I know from being adopted, too, and you know that I found great comfort in the Asian American community, but sometimes... 
I definitely come up against folks who don't think that I really belong in it. So with Robert Sung and his using one to get to Powerball and his obsession with Powerball, partly because of how Powerball is, partly because of their past relationship, partly because he wishes he could be playing basketball. Tell me more about creating his character. Yeah, so actually one of the early prompts that Boz gave us was to borrow from another novel, uh, borrow the opening from another novel. And so I, I borrowed this from The Sun Also Rises. So like um, Robert Sung being what, like Robert Cohn, is that what his name is? And the narrator looking at him as the opening to the book, the obsession with Brett Young. So I like the idea of kind of having this narrator judge somebody kind of from the community, but not from the community, the way that Robert Cohn is this kind of like, right, in this expat community, but but is seen as different because he's Jewish. Sung is a, as a, is just like one in many ways, but in other ways, right, because he his career is over and because he's adopted, isn't included in the life that one thinks of as his own or the story that one thinks of as his own. This then kind of like, you know, is a way of characterizing both of them, which I think is the, is the, is the usefulness of that opening, right? You kind of have this, like, I'm looking at you, but my, the way that I see you says a lot about me, maybe more about me than it does about you. And it opens up this possibility for kind of the negative space of what the actual story of a person is um, and how that is going to unfold over a story, over over the book, um, as well as kind of like, what are the limitations of this narrator? And how do those things then kind of like control or have an effect on the narrative that's going to proceed? So there's your frame of reference. This It's the sun. Also, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something that like a word that has come up a lot, a concept that has come up a lot so far as we're talking is like limitations and restrictions and, and both on maybe the population of people we're talking about, but also as a writer. And I think sometimes yeah. for writers, that's like the scariest part is when you go to an open page and infinite possibilities are there, you get stuck like every sentence can lead to a whole universe and that limitations on your writing finding some kind of boundary is what maybe can get you to the page before you would otherwise maybe you'd faint yeah absolutely i wrote a whole book once that was like i'm just going to try to write everything in the in the we voice and the prompt was that i was giving myself was every story has to be about an epidemic but I think like for many of the things that I'm doing, I'm often kind of trying to put some kind of arbitrary restrictions on it so that within that space, there's some friction. And that friction, I think, leads to a lot of imaginative creativity. Yeah. And I think it's also something that you don't want it to be transparent to the reader. Is that true? Would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think that's true in many cases, though, um, sometimes that the restrictions are are interesting, right? Like, um, I think it depends on whether you want that the reading experience to be partly about those restrictions or not, right? So like the Ulipo stuff or something, right? Like writing a whole book without the letter E, part of the fun of that is knowing what the restriction is. Um, 
but in other books where you're kind of just using the restriction to uh, get yourself to the page and to spark your own creativity, then in the end, you might not want those restrictions to show. We'll be right back to this interview after some words about one of the sponsors of this episode. Have you ever heard of Scribophile? It's an online community where writers from beginners to published professionals can submit work and get feedback from readers around the world. Published authors say the community of readers helps them hone their craft and become better storytellers. You can also learn about specific writing topics with Scribophile's new array of video-based writing classes in fiction and nonfiction. Best-selling author L.S. Hawker is leading a class on writing page-turning thrillers, and Karen Albright-Lynn, award-winning novelist and editor, shares instruction on mastering the art of subtext. Those are just two of many classes offered this spring on topics from novel writing to character development. Classes run from two to six weeks and feature live face-to-face video, a unique personal format among the variety of writing classes offered on the web. Classes feature enough time for you to ask questions and have meaningful discussions on craft. Learn more about Scribophile's online reading and writing community and all the class offerings at Scribophile.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-O-P-H-I-L-E.com. And now back to the interview. So I wanted to ask you about the K-drama element. I'm assuming that you watch them. And I, I'd love to hear more about that. But I, you also said something in there, um, in Carrie's, I think it was in Carrie's voice, that in Korea, plot happens because of who people are, not because of what they choose. And that sounds very similar to what you were talking about in the beginning with Marilyn Robinson talking about plot. So can you talk about that and K-drama? Yeah. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying about, right, like, What's the number one predictor of what your income is? It's your parents' income, actually. Um, and and many things in our life are like that. Um, and so K-drama often seems like more of an acknowledgement to me. And also like it's often critiquing these things as well, right? Like if you think even of like what's the big K-drama hit over here, Squid Game, right? It's just kind of like what's determining whether or not they're going to play this game of life and death it's really you know they're it's like low income it's poverty and they wouldn't make this choice right it's it's barely a choice at all if it is a choice it's just kind of like we're going to manufacture a way for people to think that they're making a choice to do this by letting them like have the option of leaving and then giving them the option of coming back when of course they're just going back to poverty and they're still right so they have to come back Korean society is also like very stratified as ours is and and but they also believe in you know or many people believe in and and are you know there's kind of like Buddhism is a large religion there and there's the ideas of like kind of having multiple lives or um you know like living out a life from the past or um, there's the idea of like these supernatural things happening around us. And so all of this makes it seem like, you know, we're not kind of individuals who think therefore we are, right? Who have this kind of like idea that we can kind of change 
in what makes you know we change our environment rather than our environment changes us and and that what whatever we want to happen or think about is is what makes us who we are and that sometimes it seems like having so many stories that insist that this is the way to live a life that makes for a good story or makes for good drama and makes for good characters and puts a lot of pressure on people who don't have as much ability to have that life, I think, and and also still want to become better people. And so are you kind of saying that also when you talk about plot, that you're really looking more at just how people are in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about within the life that we have to live, what do we do with that? You know, but also like, I don't know if that's what I would think of as plot anyway. In Craft in the Real World, I tried to define it as like acceptance or rejection of consequences, because I think we're going to have to deal with consequences and take responsibility for these consequences, whether or not we are the ones who cause things or things happen to us. And in order to like, you know, rethink how a book can work without it being like a tragic flaw that we have that causes all these bad things to happen to us or good things to happen to us. What if we, you know, what if there's just an earthquake and we've got to live right in the rubble? Or what if there's you know, a metaphorical earthquake, right? Some kind of trauma or what if the earthquake is just being alive? What if the earthquake is being born poor or being born Asian American or you're being an orphan or something, right? So these are the things we have to still live with and the consequences are still going to kind of drive a story forward. They're just maybe a different kind of story than the ones we've come to expect as uh, to be as good or as like pleasurable fun or whatever. Something else that you say in here, um, and I want to actually read it, because um, I'm curious how it applies to the writing process and maybe your writing process. And it kind of has a little bit to do with when you get to the middle of books, which can be really challenging. And you yeah. write, um, the second half of a K-drama is the show's danger zone. In the episodes just after the halfway point, a show is more likely to both to lose its viewers and in an attempt to keep them to throw everything it can in the couple's way. If the first half of a K-drama is about falling in love, the second half is about holding on to love. And I know my experience is middles are hard, not just in writing, but in everything. They're hard in a marathon. They're they're yeah. hard when you're cooking, you know. So just wondering about that and how that relates to your writing experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These like midlife crises bite everything. <laughs> the um, uh, yes, I think for for sure the novel middle of the novel is also that well like right after the halfway point is the danger zone in a novel as well. Um, but maybe that just goes to the the what I found is K drama is a very close form, maybe our closest form to a novel. You know, if you imagine like twelve hours of TV, that's you know like that's a lot closer to a novel than two hours of TV or. Um, you know, 120 hours of TV where they're always trying to like come up with something that will buy them a new season. The midway point, right? And I think we kind of like falling in love, right? Like who doesn't like <laughs> like that? That's an amazing narrative on its own. And then, um, but 
holding onto that is much less interesting, like inherently maybe. Um, and it kind of requires often in a K-drama some other conflict that's going to come up, you know, when the conflict so far has been like people's feelings. You know, like for the first half, we've got this kind of like people are just kind of wrestling with their desires. And and then in the midpoint, once they've, you know, consummated those desires, which in K-drama is just a kiss, um, then what do you do, right? Because like there's suddenly you've got desire fulfilled and that's just like not recipe for a story. So you've got like you've got to bring in some other thing here. And if they haven't already figured out what that is, then it can be pretty messy and it can often lose people. Um, there's this great K-drama called W. It's uh, a woman whose father is a, 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 cartoon, a webtoon artist and um, she gets, or a manga artist, and she gets sucked into his cartoon. Cartoon is really not the right word for it. <laughs> she gets sucked into his manga, and she falls in love with the character in the manga. But then she doesn't know how to get out of it. And so these all these rules from manga start happening where she's like, she has to figure out how to end the episode right? Which is like something really dramatic has to happen so she can get back to her world. And so she keeps trying to make something dramatic happen. It's really amazing. And so for the first half, it's all of this changing and morphing stuff around them trying to figure out how to navigate these two worlds. And then the second half like completely falls apart. It's it's like famous for falling apart. And they even had to like bring the writer on afterwards and interview her because they couldn't figure out if it was her fault or the director's fault and she was blaming the director. And so there's all, it was, it's, um, but you know, like once you get to that halfway point, really need something else to carry it. Um, and I find the same thing happens in novels. So there's this show, which isn't the best K drama, but it's, it's called Pinocchio. And it's a good example of this though, where, um, the first half of them is these two people falling in love and they're they've one of them has been kind of like taken into the family and the other one is the daughter and the family. Um, so they've grown up like kind of best friends and the male is a orphan and the, the woman's mother is like this very distant reporter who, you know, like isn't kind of a part of the family because she's always off doing her reporter stuff. And then they become reporters um, and they fall in love as reporters. And then halfway through, what happens is they have to, you know, once they fall in love, now the the reason why that's like the thing that's holding them apart is that the reason why he's an orphan is because her mother, the reporter, had reported falsely on a story that accused his parents of of being to blame for some fire or something that killed a lot of people and so his his family committed suicide right and so then now they've got to deal with this fact that their, her family is responsible for his family's deaths um not directly exactly but kind of directly responsible and so that's going to carry you right through the second half of the drama um if you don't have something like that kind of built in, then it, like often that comes from somewhere outside, you know, like I have a book where a flood 
happens halfway through and it's it's kind of for the same reason i knew that there's going to need to be something there and sometimes we'll have something come in from outside the story and sometimes there's something built into the story that then kind of activates at the halfway point but yeah it's a very dangerous place i think uh because because we're kind of having to change what is the thing keeping people apart or keeping the desire from being fulfilled Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Can you imagine, like, if poets and writers called you and your editor in? And said, whose fault is it that this book, you know, jumped the shark in the middle? We want to get down to the bottom of it. I mean, it's a creative endeavor. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I know. I can't. I don't know. This writer is really great. And I, I love all of her shows. But actually, a few of them kind of do the same thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it just also goes to show you, though, right? Like, there's so much interest there. And nobody would care if the first half of the show wasn't so amazingly good, right? It's just like it becomes, you can kind of make it hard for yourself and you have to kind of think a lot about what's going to happen there because if you don't, then you end up trying out a bunch of stuff. That's kind of what happens in the show. It's just like, well, let's just try other things to try to make it interesting now and let's just keep like keep doing weird stuff so that we can try to keep it going, but it's already kind of lost what it had in the first half. So for people who are interested in, in getting into K-drama, do you rent these online? No. So some many of these now can be found on Netflix, but um, the place where I watch a lot of them is is actually, it's Viki, V-I-K-I, and it's another kind of subscription service. It's like $5 a month, but it's it's fan subbed. So people from all over the world are subbing these things sometimes like an hour or two after it's come out. Um, so it's like these sub teams of, of just volunteers, uh, which is kind of nice. I like that part of it. You know, one of the things I think part of one's journey and a question in his mind um, he says, I don't know if this is verbatim, but this is pretty much what he says, that he doesn't really think without basketball that he, he would be nothing. He would be unlovable. And I'm curious your thoughts a little bit about how you modulate, like you want more attention. It's, you know, maybe he was the first Asian American basketball star. So he wants to be known for that. But at the same time, what if that fame is actually could be your ruin because it makes you feel like you're nothing else. Yeah. It's the danger of uh, the single story, right? Um, which Adichie did a great 
talk on, but there's this kind of way in which, right, for, for especially for Asian Americans, or maybe not especially for Asian Americans, but for Asian Americans, there's this kind of model minority myth, right, that becomes the one positive story. And then we kind of cling on to these things and think, you know, if I am quiet and hardworking and studious and don't make any trouble, then people will love me because I'll fit into this thing that is positive, right? Um, but that too is its own kind of trap because then you're not a person anymore. You're this kind of symbol of what a good Asian American is. Um, and so for one, too, there's there's the trap and he knows that it's a trap, but again, you're right. Like, it's like, you know, he's got to ride this for as long as he can because otherwise, right, they haven't been letting him do anything. And, you know, I think one of the decisions, again, right, like the, one of the decisions he has to make is like, can I live with this being the story of who I am or do I try to escape from it altogether? Uh, I, it happens to people in all kinds of ways, right? There's like, if somebody publishes one really successful book, and they're often known as like the writer of that book, right? And the other books kind of like fade to the background and people always think of them as as this person or, you know, you just like one major thing happens in your life and people always think of you as in this context or, you know, or even like the ways that we go. I, I talk about this with my students a lot, but like when you go home to your parents' house and they treat you like you're still 18 years old, <laughs> it's like... This is how they know to love you, but it also is really frustrating because you are obviously not 18 years old anymore, <laughs> but, you know, you're kind of fit into this story that they have of you that is stopped for them sometimes. I don't know if you've ever had this experience and if your parents have the same house that you grew up in, but when I go home, I always feel so tall. I'm not tall. I'm five two, <laughs> but I just feel so tall in my house. It's like I'm almost inhabiting these two beings at once. It's such a strange sensation. I love that so much. I, I, my parents have moved. Um, they actually, I grew up in Connecticut, but they moved to Florida, so I don't have that uh, sensation. But I can totally imagine that. I think when you just go back to your hometown, it's it seems so different and much smaller than you imagined and in many ways right the you know I remember when I was a kid I thought I still have this idea that in Connecticut it snows like 40 inches or something because I would have to like be up to my waist in snow <laughs> but of course now it's not it wouldn't be like that it's probably only up to like an ankle or something I don't know how we talk about the ending but maybe we can sort of try to talk about it, which is, you know, the ending, I think, could have thrown the reader for a loop. And, and you're kind of asking them to interrogate the book all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Sure. So I think I've been thinking a lot about books that you close and you feel satisfied with but they don't ever kind of live within you as, as a reader. And I find a lot of books, even that kind of ask for change or that are stories of revolution or resistance, many of them are satisfying in that resistance. And so that when I am done with them, I feel like I've gotten something that 
doesn't extend into the real world. Um, and the last couple of books, I've I've been thinking a lot about how to leave a book at the ending where instead of kind of closing it and feeling like you've gotten the story, you have to kind of make the story, you know, live within yourself. Um, and the book kind of asks you to do that. And so I actually ended my last novel with a um, an M dash. And this one, um, you know, asks the reader to kind of think, yeah, think through the book again and revisit what they think they know about this story now that they've read the entire thing. And I'm hopeful, I, I always feel like, like, what are we doing if we don't think a book can actually change somebody's life? I mean, I've realized also, though, that that, of course, is like maybe too much to try to live up to all the time. But, you know, maybe we can just try. <laughs> uh, and so I've been trying to try. I've been trying to, like, figure out a way for the book to be more than than what it is. Do you have a novel that's out there or a short story that is like your favorite ending? Great question. I don't know. Hmm. That's my favorite ending. I don't know about that, but I will say for a long time, I was just walking around with this image in my head of, of people crossing this like rickety train tracks and, you know, uh, like a bridge, train track bridge. Um, and I was like, what? where is where is this image from? Is it from like a movie or something? Um, and then I was rereading Housekeeping for like the third time or something, and I realized that it was from Housekeeping, um, and uh, it, would ju- it had just totally gotten out of the book and become a thing in my head. And I, I like the idea of that. And and Housekeeping is full of these kind of like really striking images, right? And and the kind of like starkness surrounding them right there's there's not a whole lot of interpretation of those images uh and so i think a lot of the interpretation is left up to people reading the book which can be for some readers i think very frustrating what also means sometimes that they kind of just stick there can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer yeah, sure. So I'm going to read uh, Persimmons by Leung Lee. In sixth grade, Mrs. Walker slapped the back of my head and made me stand in the corner for not knowing the difference between persimmon and precision. How to choose persimmons? This is precision. Ripe ones are soft and brown spotted. Sniff the bottoms. The sweet one will be fragrant. How to eat? Put the knife away. Lay down newspaper. Peel the skin tenderly, not to tear the meat. Chew the skin, suck it, and swallow. Now eat the meat of the fruit, so sweet, all of it, to the heart. Donna undresses, her stomach is white. In the yard, dewy and shivering with crickets, we lie naked, face up, face down. I teach her Chinese. Crickets, choo-choo, dew, I've forgotten. Naked. I've forgotten. Knee, woe, you and me. I part her legs. Remember to tell her she is as beautiful as the moon. Other words that got me into trouble were fight and fright, wren and yarn. 
Fight was what I did when I was frightened. Fright was what I felt when I was fighting. Wrens are small, plain birds. Yarn is what one knits with. Wrens are soft as yarn. My mother made birds out of yarn. I love to watch her tie the stuff. A bird, a rabbit, a wee man. Mrs. Walker brought a persimmon to class and cut it up so everyone could taste a Chinese apple. Knowing it wasn't ripe or sweet, I didn't eat, but watched the other faces. My mother said, every persimmon has a sun inside, something golden, glowing, warm as my face. Once in the cellar, I found two wrapped in newspaper, forgotten and not yet ripe. I took them and set both on my bedroom windowsill, where each morning a cardinal sang, the sun, the sun. Finally, understanding he was going blind, my father sat up all night, waiting for a song, a ghost. I gave him the persimmons, swelled, heavy as sadness and sweet as love. This year, in the muddy lighting of my parents' cellar, I rummage, looking for something I lost. My father sits on the tired wooden stairs, black cane between his knees, hand over hand, gripping the handle. He's so happy that I've come home. I ask how his eyes are, a stupid question. All gone, he answers. Under some blankets, I find a box. Inside the box, I find three scrolls. scrolls. I sit beside him and untie three paintings by my father. Biscuit leaf and a white flower. Two cats preening. Two persimmons, so full they want to drop from the cloth. He raises both hands to touch the cloth, asks, which is this? This is persimmons, father. Oh, the feel of the wolf tail on the silk, the strength, the tense precision in the wrist. I painted them hundreds of times, eyes closed. These I painted blind. Some things never leave a person. Scent of the hair of one you love. The texture of persimmons in your palm. The ripe weight. Can you share more about why you chose that? Um, I often kind of turn to this poem in particular, but um, to poetry and to think about kind of the language and rhythms and precision <laughs> and uh, concision. Uh, and Young Lee, you know, his work has been meaningful to me over the years. Uh, and this poem is my favorite of his. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you just really liked. Sure. I'm going to read. So I'll tell you this story afterwards, but I'll read from like, it's like 173. Finally, we decided not to throw kimchi at one of us, but to throw it at someone we hated. One's first thought was the next owner who kept stringing him along. We looked up the guy online, but he lived in a giant mansion on Long Island. We needed someone we hated in Manhattan. That was how we ended up in the garden of the IBM building, our faces hidden by hospital masks, about to toss a quart of kimchi across the street onto the second floor window of Trump Tower. Why there? I had worked on a film once about a man who wants nothing and so takes on other people's desires as his. This phenomenon is called mimetic desire. The film depicts an extreme example but we embrace substitutes all the time. Trump was that substitute for white Americans. What one made Asian Americans feel was mimetic wonder. 
His story made our own more possible. We loved him because we wanted to love ourselves. What I mean is, I was making a show about him in a way because I was making my own wonder. The PD came to her senses first. She asked who would clean the windows. All the kimchi slab would do was make more work for the window washers. We came down from the garden and Juan and I took the kimchi home with us to eat. I used it for a few pots of soup, but the kimchi was store-bought and tasted like chemicals. Can you share why you chose that? Yeah, so I <laughs> had had the idea that they would throw kimchi at Trump Tower uh, pretty early on in, <laughs> in this draft, but it just as kind of a joke, and I thought it would be fun to have that happen. Um, but as I was kind of writing it over, I needed to figure out what it was doing. And, and then I saw this kind of opportunity to go straight at um, themes here, right? Uh, and so the, that part about the film that Carrie had worked on, um, I kind of used the, the things that Carrie worked on throughout as ways to get closer to talking directly about theme or ideas in the book. And that interlude then kind of explains some of this, what is what's going to happen. But then I realized eventually that they couldn't really throw the kimchi at Trump Tower, even though I had done some research on how to, how it would be possible, right? Which is why they're in the IBM Tower and they can actually, you could actually probably do that from there. Um, because, because, I just thought the same thing the PD thinks, which is, well, this, it's not actually going to affect anyone except for the people who have to clean up the mess. Um, and that too seemed like thematically interesting uh, and, and kind of on theme. Uh, and so then I was trying to figure out how to, how to get that in. And in the end, I wanted to, I'm always trying to end on the, a kind of like symbolic action and so the the soup, um, right? Like trying to make it into something else, but it's it's not satisfying. You know, this is the kind of um, right. So the action then kind of stands in for some of the ideas and and emotions and meaning here. Um, so it took me quite a while to figure out how to do this <laughs> this thing, which I, at first I thought would just be a fun throw kimchi, you know, kimchi slap Trump Tower. Where do you write? I write, uh, right now I write in my living room at a, a desk next to my bookcases, but um, I actually find that I could write almost anywhere, just not at any time. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I watch K-drama, I play with my kids, um, sometimes I play video games, but I don't really anywhere. Maybe it's the pandemic, but I haven't been anywhere in a while. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So my friend Kirsten Chen and I, um, who's also a, an amazing author, and uh, we went to grad school together and, and we send each other a thousand words a day when we're drafting our novels um, and sometimes while we're revising too. How have you dealt with rejection? It never really bothered me that much. But it's possibly because I'm very hard on myself. So it all just seemed like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? My favorite word 
is long. I just like these words that are like, that have the, the thing built into them. Thank you so much for your time and sharing this conversation with me. I'm so appreciative. No, thank you so much. This is fun. If you like today's show with Matthew Salisis, author of the novel, The Sense of Wonder, check out my interview with Hannah Tinty, author of The Good Thief. She talked about her work as an editor, writing about the physical bodies of her characters, and starting One Story magazine. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 390 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Rebecca Mackay, and Maggie Smith. In June, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of First Draft. If you have ideas on how we can best celebrate, drop me a line at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Merv Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.